One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you were doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And so they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. The parable of the tenants. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers and they went away for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but this one also they beat and treated shamefully, and he sent away empty-handed. He sent a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out to the vineyard and killed him. What then will, what, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to the others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked them, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the, the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he, who, whom it's fall, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks uh, for our reading, Gary. So, today's uh, passage, just jump straight into us, from Luke's Gospel, is basically a three-act play. We firstly meet Jesus having a, a heated conversation with the leaders of the Jews at the time. And then after that, after outwitting them in that conversation, he tells them a story. Now, whether he tells them this story in reaction to their behavior, I don't know. But he clearly knows, you know, these lads have no respect for me. No sense of who I am. And he tells them a story that shows them exactly what he thinks of them. And it ain't pretty. And then lastly, we see that the crowd is so shocked by this story. And Jesus, in response, quotes to them from the Bible to show them what he says fits with what it teaches and so the hard message that he has just delivered is not just his opinion 
but it's the opinion of God's word as well. So, that's a summary of what's in front of us. Might appear dry to you at the moment, just wait. I will say this though, you might be forgiven for thinking, well hold on there now Richie, you know, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Jewish leader, certainly not a Jewish leader at the time of Jesus, what does this have to do with me? That's a fair question. Sometimes I read the Bible and I'm like, okay, that was interesting. But uh, what does it have to do with my life here in Belfast in 2018? Well, I would say this. Firstly, you know, we're learning something about how Jesus regards himself, right? He's talking about himself here. And if you were with us last week, Stephen was preaching and he showed us that you have to worship Jesus as he is, not as we make him up to be. So, you know, we see a side of Jesus today that is, dare I say, um, underreported. He lays it out real clear for these guys. The cornerstone, you know, we sing about the cornerstone here often enough. It's great if you're standing on him. But if he falls on you, well, you, you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't want that happening. So anytime you learn about the nature of God is good. It adds to, it firms up your picture of who God really is. And then secondly also, uh, as I'll, I'll make clear, there are some clear applications in this story, both to those of us who are already Christians and those of us who are still not so sure about him. But we'll, we'll get into that. We start off here today with Jesus teaching a crowd in the temple and the big boys come up to him and they want to know on what authority are you teaching this stuff here, huh? Now remember, right, that he's after clearing this place out. We don't know, maybe a few days beforehand. We looked at it last week, but let me refresh your memory. Very famous story. The image of Jesus with the whip in one hand, flaking left, right and centre, chasing animals, kicking over the tables, making a mess. It's quite vivid. But the thing is, when you think about it, it's not immediately apparent why he did that. Because actually all those businesses that he reacted against, they have their place. People came from all over Israel and the Middle East to the temple to offer sacrifices. And so they needed animals to sacrifice and they needed their money changed to buy the animals. So all the things that Jesus got upset at, they actually have their place. And no doubt, they claim they were doing the Lord's work as well. Providing animals for the appropriate sacrifices. The problem is that they're doing it inside the temple. It's meant to be a place of prayer and worship, but they had turned it into a den of thieves. And let me uh, underline this. There's nothing wrong with commerce. It's a legitimate way of living. But these boys, by so shamelessly positioning themselves right in the temple where God was to be worshipped, they revealed that their true motives was, was to make the most money and not to facilitate the worship of God. And that's the context then you see of today's passage. Jesus cleans out the temple and in doing so, he really shows the leaders up. And the Jewish leaders were the ones who claimed for themselves to be the real Jews, real holy rollers. And yet Jesus comes in and he takes a hard line with all these traitors. 
And taking hard lines was the kind of thing that the leaders were known for, and yet Jesus, even on this, he outflanks them. And he doesn't just talk about it either. He puts his money where his mouth was, and he did it. You know, how often do you meet someone, or maybe yourself, and you get all righteously angry about something, and then you do nothing. You complain about something, but that's as far as it goes. Well, Jesus did something about it. Anyway, after clearing the place out, he gets to teaching. He sets up a little daily free seminar on the good news with himself as the main and only speaker. And every day there's a crowd there listening to him. And eventually these murderous, conniving boyos work up enough courage to come and challenge him. And they say to him, why are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And notice they don't ask him why he sent out the traitors. That would probably show them up. And the truth is a few chapters ago, I think it's chapter 15, Luke tells us that these guys loved money. So it's very likely that when Jesus overturned all those tables, they were, they were put out of pocket a bit. Anyway, they don't say that. They just want to know on what authority has he done all that he's done. And you could say it's a normal question. Jesus is acting like someone who acts with authority. And so they just want to find out what or who it comes from. And especially as they are the current authorities, why wouldn't they ask him? But I think they knew full well what his answer would be. They're hoping he says something that they can get on him and use against him. And of course, they do in about a week or two, but not today. Because of course, Jesus is too good for them. He knows what they're up to. And he responds to their question with a question of his own. So, you know, if your mother has ever told you, don't answer a question with a question, well, you can say it's good enough for Jesus. I'll do it. But he does. He asked them about John's baptism. Was it from heaven? In other words, was it from God? Or was it of human origin? Now, this is a reference back to uh, chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel. John the Baptist was baptizing people who repented of their sins. And John was your stereotypical fiery preacher. And he had no time for the Jewish leaders either. He called them a brood of vipers. And he pronounced a coming judgment for them. And he also preached that Jesus was far more special than he. So embedded in this mention of John is a, another a reference to Jesus' specialness, which they didn't get. And overall, John's position at that time seemed to be the common person of Israel loved John. But the leaders, not so much. So when Jesus mentions John, he's touching on a very sore point for these guys. Because they disliked them. And he was also, John that is, was a person who got a lot of respect and they craved it. The truth is, these leaders, as if it wasn't obvious, are not good lads at all. And this then whole discussion that we have privy to in response to Jesus' question really shows the true heart of these men. I mean, look at it, right? Luke has somehow been able to figure out what they discussed between themselves when Jesus asked them the question, which, which, by the way, probably means that he was able to do so because one of the leaders, one of these guys later on, turned to the truth and told them, so, you know, no matter how bad you are, there's even grace for the likes of these guys. 
But anyway, what I want you to see is the leader's whole discussion here is based on two things, optics and outcomes. How will we look based on which answer we give and what does each scenario mean for us? They're not seeking the truth at all. They don't seek to answer this question. In fact, they don't even tell the truth when they say we don't know. Of course they thought John's words were from himself and not from heaven. But they were gutless. They were too scared to face a negative reaction. And so they lied. And then Jesus, it's, it's kind of hard actually not here, it's, it's hard here not to imagine him being a bit smug. But I don't feel like smugness could ever be a good quality. And as such, our, knowing that our Lord never sinned or did anything wrong, I actually imagine he wasn't smug. But reader here, sorry, when he says, neither will I tell you by what authority am I doing these things, I think he was either sad or angry. And my money will be on anger because immediately he turns around and he tells a story which was about the leaders of the Jews and it's not a good one. In fact, it ends with the leaders being killed by the character who represents God the Father. So I think I'm right in saying he's quite angry here. And this parable is in the same vein as the parable of the talents we heard about, I think it's two weeks ago now, and you might remember that was a similarly hard-hitting story. In it, God is gracious. He gives some people things to do, and they reject them. And in the end, the God figure in that story does as he does here, which is he executes them. The story ahead of us here is pretty straightforward. A man owns a vineyard, rents it out to some appropriate tenants, farmers, Three times he sends a servant to collect the rent, which, by the way, is not in cash, but it's rent in kind. So bear that in mind. The man is looking for fruit. But each time the farmers beat up the servant and they send him away. The last section is a tragedy. The owner reckons that despite all that's happened, he can still count on the farmer's respect for him, which is very gracious of him. And he feels that if he sends his son, the respect they have for him will challenge them and they will pay him what is owed. But instead the farmers think to themselves, this lad is the heir to the property. So if we can get rid of him, we'll keep the land. So let's kill him. And they do. And Jesus then ends with a rhetorical question which he also immediately answers. What do you think the owner will do when he finds out what's happened? He's going to come and kill the tenants and give the vineyard to someone else. Now you need to know a few things here, folks. Firstly, the vineyard is a fairly fairly well-known way of talking about Israel, right? If I was to tell you a story where one character kept saying, never, never, never. You would immediately know, if you've lived here for any length of time, that I was making an allusion to a certain preacher who lived not so far from here. Or maybe even a preacher of his type. I wouldn't have to mention his name. 
Well, to use a vineyard in a story functioned in the same way for the Jews. It didn't need explaining as to what was being referred to. Any religious person at the time, and remember they were in the temple when Jesus is telling this story, so you'd assume his listeners were up in their Bible, but any faithful Jew would have known that way back before, a couple of hundred years ago, the prophet Isaiah had told them a story on behalf of God, chapter 5 if you're interested, of a vineyard that was eventually destroyed. And Isaiah tells them that it was destroyed because when God looked at Israel, he saw a lack of justice and a lack of righteousness. And as a result, Isaiah says, someone is coming who would do to them what happened to that vineyard. And sure enough, the single worst thing that happened to the Israelites since they entered the land of Israel occurred sometime later when the Babylonians came and destroyed the country, killed most of them, and then sent the majority of those left behind into exile in Babylon. So you can imagine that this story was burned into the collective brain of Israel. So the vineyard, a well-known metaphor for themselves, and not a good metaphor. That's why they react the way they do. You can't tell a vineyard story and not have people worried. And in this case, though, the story was a little bit different because in this case, the country itself isn't going to get punished. It's the leaders, the boys who are looking after it. And that's why the leaders are so keen to kill him after this. They know exactly what he's saying. Jesus has just lumped them in with the worst Israelites in their history. Now, in a sense, Jesus isn't actually saying anything new here. All through the history of the Israelites, we see story after story of people being led astray into idolatry, into various sins, and nearly always ending up in violence and immorality. And each time, God punishes those in charge removes them and sets up a new leadership. And this story is also just a variation on a theme of what we heard from Christoph a few weeks ago. If you don't produce fruit for God, he will take your abilities off you. Here, though, the point is more aimed at the leaders. They thought they were protected by their status and their good deeds and the job they were doing. Well, Jesus has got some news for them. Their time is up. They're in a long line of folk who thought they would be protected by their position. And they ain't. I should add before, before I go on that there are, there are two hallmarks of the guys in this story. Violence and Greed. And what drives both of them is land, possessions, but land in this case. And it's an age-old story, you know, blood for soil. Now certainly you can make the case that this parable is a warning to those, all those who claim to lead the church. If you're a bad leader, if you're an elder or a minister or a ministry leader, and you're there because of the power it gives you, Uh, or for some reason other than you're there rather than for God, well, you're in a bad position. No matter how you justify it, this, this parable is a warning to them. But first and foremost, as I thought about this, it's clear that this is a prophetic warning to all the leaders in the world. If you are making war, if you are about making war 
and killing for your own interests. And you just got to turn on the news to see plenty of examples of it. And something big and horrible is coming your way, my friend. You need to repent of your violence and of your greed. Now, brothers and sisters, I, I do believe that there is such a thing as a just war. Our tradition is taught that you need to have the right reasons to go to war and the right conduct when you're doing it. Although by my calculations, most wars fail one or the other. So I'm not saying there ain't a time to fight. But I'd be very careful about putting my name behind the name of someone who thinks that we need to kill for our land. You might think it's righteous. But it could very well be that you're in opposition to God. In fact, it could very well be that in your heart you're effectively killing the Son of God. And I'm sure I don't need to spell out just how unadvisable such a path is. I'm sure you can see by now, I hope you can see by now, why the people reacted as they did. You know, this is like, uh, I, I said it a couple of weeks ago, some of you reacted to it. It's like a slap across the face. And if you were there, you may remember that I also said I felt like I'd been hugged at the same time. But there's no hug here. Well, not yet anyway. And so the people listening are really shocked. They're like, no way! Our leaders want to kill the son? No way! And Jesus responds with two quotes, both from the Bible. Firstly, he says, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, you need to know something here. These cornerstones were foundation stones, and they had two necessary qualities. One, they had to be strong, and two, they had to be perfectly smooth and angled. All the stones in the building were laid relative to it. If it was off, then all the other stones laid on it, on top of it, or alongside it, would also be off, and the building would be skewed. So it's an important stone. It's the most important stone. And Jesus pulls out a verse which teaches that a stone that was rejected would actually be the most important stone. But this isn't just a random verse. It's actually from Psalm 118. And do you remember where we've, we've heard that recently? That's the same psalm they were singing when he rode into Jerusalem a few days before. Well, they missed this bit. They were thinking he was coming to change everything overnight. He was coming to change things, all right, but not the way they'd expected. They thought a Messiah would bolster the claims of those currently in charge. But instead, he says, their days are numbered. And then he says this next verse here, and I've always wondered about it. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And I've always thought, you know, what difference does it make? Is there really a substantial difference between being broken to pieces and being crushed? You know, does it matter to someone who is dead how they died? They both seem kind of horrible to me. Well, I think what we see here is just a picture of two ways to reject Jesus. Some people stumble over him. Others reject him outright. Some people are not sure about what he has to say. They're tentative, testing the waters. 
They know what he asks, but it seems wrong or maybe unnecessary or too much. And you know, since I've come to Kirkpatrick, one of the big things that I've learned here and really appreciated and I've been taken with me is that the front doors are wide open in this church. No matter who you are or where you come from or what you've done, all that don't matter. Come on in, you're very welcome here every Sunday. But you want to be a community member though. You want to come up here and take part in this holy meal with us. Well, that signifies that you believe that you will eat with him and us one day in heaven. And you want to do that, that's a different story. You've got to believe some things. And by the way, if you're interested in that, it's coming up in a couple of months. But whether or not you believe it, you're still welcome here on a Sunday morning. And the thing I've learned from that is that when I first came, you know, I was very, I was a bit more stricter. I was about stricter about a lot of things, I think. But uh, I believed, you know, you should, this Sunday should only be for those who believe what they, what we're talking about here, coming together to worship God. And if you want to come in, that's fine. But let's make it, get a decision out of you fairly quick. But now I see that letting people come in, take their time, is a much better way of doing it. You don't frighten them off. They think about it every week as they hear the Bible being preached. And God speaks to them at his pace. And the truth is many folks do just that. I bet you I could talk to a good share of you today and you'd just, you'd, you would tell me a similar story. But let me say this. There's a clear message here. If you're one of the ones that stumble over them, I can't push you, and I see now that I shouldn't push you to believe, but I can say this. Look at what he's saying. It don't matter how you reject them. If you reject them at all, the consequences are in a similar category as if you totally reject them. I'm going to... We're nearly, nearly finished. Just a short one, I think, for me today. There hasn't been much hugging in this one. But I did say there would be some, and this, this is it. This is for all of us. If you reject the men who want to rule the world with violence and are driven by greed, if you want to follow Jesus, you don't reject them. You want them. You don't stumble over him. You're sure he is what the Bible says he is. Well, then you're a Christian, right? And I know that there are times when it's just a part of your life or it feels like that. You wake up, you get dressed, you go about your day, you see your failings, you see your weaknesses, your sins, every day. You do you every day and you know what you're like and you know what life is like. And so it's easy to forget that you're on, we're on, a very special walk. So just forget about the ups and downs for a moment, if you can. Forget about your issues and your problems for a moment, if you can. Because when you made a decision to follow Jesus, it was the most important one that you ever made. Nothing will outshine. Is that true? Nothing will have more eternal consequences than deciding to follow him. Now look, I believe in predestination, you know. It still looks like a decision. You still acquiesce to his leading, 
Either way, it was the most important thing that has ever happened to you. Look how seriously he treats it in this passage. And as much as this passage is full of warning to those who reject them, the reverse is that following him was the best thing you ever did. Don't forget it. Don't let the everydayness of life fool you into thinking your life is normal. It ain't. It's not. And then lastly, <clears throat> this parable is also quite clear. That Jesus is someone, as we heard a few weeks ago, Jesus is someone who expects fruit from his garden. Now, immediately, some of you will start beating yourself up. And I, I think you know I don't want you to do that. But there is a place beyond unjust condemnation where we you know, cycle through in our heads. But we should examine ourselves. Are you any different from last year? Or five years ago? Not physically, no, like spiritually. Are there any of the gifts of the Spirit more present in your lives? And specifically from this passage, are you, are you more generous? Because the boys were all about making money and holding on to it. Are you more kind, which is the opposite of violence? Do you have more faith in the Lord? You probably have more than you think. It's my experience. Ask your friends. I told, I think, I left a deep mark on your psyche once when I said you should ask someone who you respect, how much do I love you? Let's revisit that question. I'm saying ask your friends. Ask someone you can trust. How am I doing here? Ask Jesus. Because as you can see from the, this parable, he's got no problem telling the truth. So this week, I'm asking you to pray and ask God who sent his son to die for us, who will one day be raised high and judge this whole world. How am I doing, Father? Am I producing fruit? And you know, uh, Christa was talking about earlier, their frulacher vexel. He's longing to give us stuff. Don't be scared of praying that prayer. That's it.